companies and cultures change, but that didn't mean that I had to change. And I think this is you know, a lesson for me that I really remember upon self-reflection that any leader, whether you're a CMO or a CEO or a first-time manager, you cannot craft a culture or be successful, authentically successful in an environment that has a set of values that's fundamentally different than, than his or her values. From Qualtrics Industries, this is Breakthrough Builders, a series of conversations with people whose passions, perspectives, instincts, and ideas fuel some of the world's most amazing products, brands, and experiences. I'm Jesse Pierwall. Today on the show, how Robert Chetwani of Atlassian reflected on his past and thought about the future to divine his personal purpose and how one key meeting early in his tenure as a chief marketing officer put everything he believed to the test. I'm here with Robert Chetwani. Robert, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jesse. So, Robert, you are an incredibly accomplished leader. You're an even better human being, and I'm so excited for this conversation Okay. Well, thank you. It feels like a rare and privileged opportunity for me to step back and reflect. And that's not often I get a chance to to do that. So Robert, let me start with your origin story. I think your parents were, were immigrants and your father came to the US first and from India, right? He did. My parents are from India. Specifically, my family's from the state of Gujarat uh, in Western India. And my father came in 1972 landed in San Francisco, stayed here in San Francisco Bay Area, where I currently am, for about two weeks before deciding that he needed to make it to Chicago. You know, he originally came to the U.S. to pursue his master's degree, but needed to work to pay for school and uh, learned and discovered that there were jobs and opportunities in Chicago and actually knew very few people at all in the United States. But he had ventured and he left India against the wishes of his family, by the way, to make a new life in the United States. My dad was the rebel in the family. I had a really conservative grandfather who had a very specific life in mind for each of his kids. And uh, I think my dad at some point decided he didn't want any part of that. I think his story is probably not too dissimilar from a lot of others, which is this desire to build a life and pursue opportunity and you know, in exchange for hard work and in exchange for leaping into a bit of the unknown, uh, knowing um, that anything is possible. And he was very adventurous and sort of very uh, comfortable with taking risks, but also knowing and having confidence in his own abilities to, uh, to make it happen. And I think I see my story in him, but I think at the core of it was just this fundamental belief that I want to create a different life for myself and I want to work hard and in exchange for that, get access to opportunity. And the goal is for him to get his master's degree and uh, to do whatever it took to make sure that he, he was able to hit those targets and uh, personal goals that he had for himself. So take me back to those years then in, in Chicagoland, um, in the Northwest suburbs, I, I think. And if I were to go back in time and meet 10-year-old, 11-year-old Robert, am I, who's Robert Chetwani at that time? <laughs> well, uh, geez, let's see, uh, 9, 10, 11 years old. 
first, you'd meet a kid who always had a side hustle. You'd catch me on the playground um, arbitraging books, uh, selling, you know, stick on tattoos, basically anything I can get my hands on. The most lucrative was candy, obviously. And I would get caught, sent to the principal's office, you know, the slap on the wrist. And I sort of figured out that, you know, if you get caught twice in a week, that's bad. But once a week, yeah, you could kind of, you know, get by and, and, and do okay. But I, I made a good living as a, as a 10-year-old on the playground selling, selling anything I can get my hands on. I love it. So you are kind of in those years then giving yourself somewhat of a lesson in supply and demand and in market forces <laughs> and exchange rates. And at the same time, you're, you're developing an interest in something that starts to sound um, commercial and, and like a marketplace. And you're maybe leaning towards economics. And so talk to me about what it was like when you left the Northwest suburbs and started to study this stuff in a more formal way. Yeah, well, look, you know, I think like a lot of folks um, in college, I sort of <clears throat> didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I just knew that it, it, uh, I, I really enjoyed business. Um, I had sort of an inkling of the field of marketing. Uh, my father uh, eventually built a career in finance and accounting. So I tried a little bit of everything. And um, what I remember most is being inspired by professors who really got me excited about different subjects and you know, again, economics in particular was something I was passionate about, but but also marketing. I started my career uh, in management consulting. And one of the great things about that is you could sort of delay or kick down the road this decision of what you want to be when you grow up. It was a great introduction to um, solving lots of problems in a structured learning environment across many, many different industries. Frankly, a lot of the economic principles I learned in college to real life business problems was really exciting for me. And the best, the best part of that was also arguably the most important part of that experience was learning to seek mentors who could really help me shape what it was I wanted to do, you know, when, when I when I really grew up, I suppose. Say a little bit more about the types of mentors that you found yourself gravitating to. Were they people who were just really smart? Were they fun, kinetic, entrepreneurial people, the likes of whom you'd been with on the playground? Were they the people that like, were like your parents? What, what kinds of mm -hmm. people did you find yourself attracted to? For me at McKinsey, what I saw was a lot of individuals who came from backgrounds just like me, which is you know modest family backgrounds, but super smart. Well, and in, in when I say that, what I mean is I felt <laughs> intimidated by the people that I was meeting big sense even you know now what it has a name but at the time I, I didn't know what it was called but imposter syndrome right which is a feeling like hey I don't belong here man these are some really smart people that I'm I get a privilege of working with day in and day out um, mm. but you know there there are a few folks uh, uh, at the time um, a partner who hired me who really bet on me his name was Glenn Foreman um, who saw in me I think a tremendous amount of um, potential. And, and said, hey, you know, we're going to bet on, on Robert and bring him into the team. Uh, and then over, over time, other mentors who saw in me, I, I believe, what I didn't necessarily at the time see in myself, which is a focus on uh, not just working hard, but really empathy, uh, empathy for 
the clients we served, empathy for my teammates, empathy for, frankly, you know, how to build great, build a great culture with whatever project that we would work on. And so, you know, what I'll never forget, uh, her name is Jackie Acho. I don't even think I've shared with her this story, but pulled me aside one day and said, hey, listen, here, here's kind of what you need to go work on in the next in the next couple of years. She really helped me understand this idea of caring for everything that you do and thinking about how I spend my time in, in a few ways. One is what's required of me. Like what's my core responsibilities of things that I just I just have to do. And then the second is what actually gives me the greatest return, which is what's best for my career, what allows me to um, progress. But then the last piece, which is where do I get the most reward? Um, you know, if I if I only do sort of uh, what's required of me and what gives me the greatest return, it's sort of not complete. But what makes me happy? Where am I personally satisfied? And you can't really get to three without one and two. I understand. I understand. So tell me a little bit about the next step here. I mean, I think a couple years out of school, you're you're still at McKinsey. There was so much happening, not just in Silicon Valley, but in a lot of places as it related to technology, entrepreneurship, and the internet yeah. was upending business models. And yeah, I think it, it's hard it, to believe. It, it tempted you and it, it attracted you. What happened? <laughs> well, here I was. I was at the time working in Washington, D.C. Uh, McKinsey had spawned a new practice. I was lucky enough. The partner who I mentioned to you bet on me in Chicago, uh, also bet on me to join him in, in Washington, D.C., uh, Glenn. And uh, it was amazing. And I was there for about a year. But I decided uh, it was a little bit too predictable. Um, and so a good friend of mine, uh, Samir, Samir Bhatia, who I had met in Chicago, and I decided we wanted to start a venture together. We wanted to start a company. And there's really only one place to do that, which is uh, to move to Silicon Valley. Uh, and, the, and back then for us, it was at, it moved to San Francisco. So wait a minute, if I put myself then in your, your parents' shoes, they're going, wait a minute, we, we crossed an ocean for this. We, we did all this hard work. <laughs> yeah. And now you're going to leave after a few years at a top management consulting firm to to just try something. Where did you get again the same maybe question about your dad? Where where did you discover your courage and your boldness to make this move at that particular point in time? You know, post college with a few years of work experience, as you start to get to know yourself a little bit. But I mentioned my friend Samir. He he wasn't incredible entrepreneur and just had such vision that I think I was inspired by there was an unprecedented shift towards businesses moving online. The dot-com boom was happening. And it was a kind of energy that I had never experienced or seen before. And while it didn't feel like it was just a window of opportunity, like we had to move now or otherwise this would could never happen, it certainly felt like I was missing out on an opportunity to start a new adventure. It just felt like something I had to do. It was a calling. What gave you the certainty? What gave you the ability to kind of be confident in yourself to to make that move? A lot of people wouldn't necessarily know which direction their compass was mm-hmm. pointing. If I just get to the crux of what it was, it was a really deep-seated desire to build something. 
So this idea of creating something from idea and concept all the way to, you know, a company, you know, it's a really hard thing to contain. And um, here I had a remarkable friend who had that same belief and same desire. And um, we decided we wanted to do it together. And that's a really, it's a really hard thing to kind of contain. So that was really the spark. So what was the idea? The idea was to build a marketplace where consumers could trade things with each other. If you bring that online, we really felt like there was a huge opportunity to create a barter community for media, for college students, and frankly, anybody who wanted to trade with each other. An online marketplace without cash. Well, so on one hand, our timing was great. We raised uh, within a you know, reasonably short amount of time, uh, a few million dollars in capital. Uh, we had about 25 employees, good early velocity, uh, good traction. But at some point, you realize that customers who like to trade things for free uh, don't like to pay transaction fees. And then we got lucky. We actually had one of our investors who introduced us to um, someone else who had a, a commercial B2B barter company. And we actually learned about an entire industry of companies that trade with each other. We didn't even know that that existed. This is where I really fell in love with the idea of technology solving um, problems related to kind of market inefficiency. And so this idea of technology and people coming together to address a market need by the way, defined by these supply-demand di- dynamics and these inefficiencies, you know, going back to what I loved about studying economics, um, here it was coming to life. I really, really fell in love with this idea of the power of technology to help solve real-world problems, um, in particularly through these marketplace business models. And so, Robert, at, at some point, that discovered passion intersects with opportunity. You, at some point, get introduced in to eBay. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, well, what happened is as we were building this business, you know, it was really a new trading format online. And we got a call, I think it was an email initially um, from the corporate development team at eBay. And the conversations went really fantastic. They didn't end up partnering with us or buying our company, but I had kept that relationship intact. And um, you know, eventually we ended up selling the assets of our company to one of our customers, and uh, it ended up leading to an opportunity to, to join eBay. But there's something else, right, beyond the premise of the business that really deeply resonates with you and, and gets you excited. Talk a little bit about, about that and what that was. What drew me to the company was it was a marketplace business uh, powered by community and powered by trust. And like many, you know, fast-growing businesses and frankly environments or organizations that have a strong purpose, you you discover more than that. And uh, frankly, I think I got fortunate, which is I really loved this idea that eBay was this engine that would create opportunity for people. You know, no no matter what language you spoke, what country you lived in, what your economic status was, anybody connecting to the marketplace was really bound by this idea of opportunity. And I think that's really something that, you know, seeing my parents' story coming from India, uh, my father's story was at the center of of why he took that leap to come to the U.S. And it almost mattered to me less what I did and more that I felt connected to this purpose of the organization that stood for something really inspiring and I think really impactful. And so you're investing in, in a sense, shifting how the world was 
typically doing business and getting to to build. Um, did you find that this was yeah. helping you discover something about your core purpose? I think for me, what I discovered is the energy that gets created when what you believe in who you are deeply intersects with the values of the organization that you're a part of. And, you know, that's certainly true for me at eBay, but it's also true for, I think, anyone in any environment that if, if that's strong, if the overlap between who you are and what you believe intersects with your team, your organization, your company, whatever it is, then it just unleashes an incredible amount of energy and, and potential. But here I was, you know, sitting in San Jose and, uh, you know, over the years I'd taken plenty of trips with my parents back and forth from India. And I came back from one of these trips um, from India and I just couldn't get over something, which is this disconnect between artisans and entrepreneurs that I saw throughout India. And, you know, this is a trip back to the state of Gujarat and specifically the city of Ahmedabad, where my family is from. And and why uh, those artisans and entrepreneurs couldn't get access to this global marketplace. Remember, I was seeing millions of transactions go by each day. But what was stopping them from being able to tap into the opportunity that would come from actually connecting to this marketplace? And that, that really spawned my next idea, uh, which is, could we actually make that happen? And so the idea was really simple, which is, at its core... Well, why don't we connect millions of people throughout the world who arguably could benefit most from a marketplace where they could sell their goods? And rather than let that play out, let that play out over the next decade, what if we were to leapfrog, go all the way to the end and figure out ways to make these connections back? There's a guy at the time at, at eBay who I floated this idea past named uh, Patrick Jabal. And uh, Patrick was sort of listening, a bit skeptical. And one of the things he said, okay, like if you're really passionate about this, how do you actually make it happen? And I would throw out some ideas here and there. And he goes, eh, it doesn't sound that great. Like who else would you do? You know, talk to, who would you connect with? Eventually I was like, I threw out an answer. I was like, well, I don't know. I, I would call the world bank. And he goes, yeah, that sounds right. Turns out there is a phone number for the world bank. Yeah, I called the switchboard, introduced myself to whoever the operator was. And uh, she forwards my phone call. Uh, to a guy named Harold Rosen. And uh, Harold Rosen is the, uh, I don't know, like deputy director or director of the International Finance Corporation Grassroots Business Fund at the World Bank. Long story short, we hit it off. Um, turns out that he's been thinking about this. He has access to supply throughout the world. eBay has demand. Those two things had never been brought together. And that was the birth of this idea of building a global marketplace on eBay's platform that would connect millions of entrepreneurs from developing countries into a global marketplace. And, you know, I would encourage anybody who is um, part of a larger organization, even frankly, any, any company, any organization, if you have an idea and you believe in it and it intersects with the company's values and mission, as well as the company's strategy, then you know, like act first, then think. Like, don't think too hard about it. Just just do something, right? Start to put your ideas down. Start to spar with other people around it. And especially when they intersect with purpose and, and strategy, do something. You know, Meg Whitman, who was at eBay, 
one of the things I learned from her, she was a CEO at the time and a big supporter of, of this work. She told me, look, the price of inaction is greater than the cost of making a mistake. The price of just sitting on your idea and not doing anything actually is expensive. For me, it actually paid off because it's ultimately what led to building that marketplace I told you about, which is, we call it worldofgood.com by eBay, partnered with another prolific entrepreneur. Her name was Priya Haji, and we did it in a partnership. And you know, there's much more, but you can't always predict where you'll end up and what you'll do when you begin a journey like this. And that's been one of my most powerful lessons is do something and get started, especially if you believe in it and it aligns with strategy. And Robert, your ability to think with agility uh, and to be responsive and, as you put it, to some extent, act, act first, then think, ended up paying some dividends in some unexpected and maybe maybe more more sad ways along the journey. If I've got my timing right, your friend Samir, he gets a diagnosis in around 2007. He has leukemia, and there were some very specific, huge hurdles that really hit home for you and Samir personally as you reckoned with how to think about a course of treatment for him. So can you talk a little yeah. about what was happening there? Yeah. So this is, uh, this is while I was, well, while I was at eBay, um, I mentioned, uh, you know, Samir, uh, the same Samir who I started my company with, you know, we were co-founders and, and, um, moved to California together. He was diagnosed with leukemia, AML, uh, a type of leukemia, um, that, uh, can be aggressive. And in, in his case, it was, now, you have to understand it's because of Samir that I moved to California. It's because of him that I started the company. It's because it's through him that I met, you know, Sheetal, uh, my wife. Um, and, it, you know, he was, it, it was, it was a brother to me. And uh, when I got this news, I was just devastated. And so, you know, as entrepreneurs, you're like, okay, <laughs> let's solve the problem. What do we need to do here? Um, and what we learned is that he needed a bone marrow transplant. The problem was that if you're Caucasian, the chances were greater than 80% that you'd find a match. If you're South Asian, like Samir was, the chances are that it's less than 1% of finding a match. And so here, you know, we're thinking, okay, no problem. Let's go to India, a population of over a billion people. And, and of course, we'll find someone who matches there. Uh, but no luck because India didn't actually have a national bone marrow registry at the time. So... The chances of him actually finding a match were about one in 20,000. So your options are one, do nothing, right? Let's let you know the medical system take its course. Uh, somebody might pop up as a match. The second thing is we can do something like get all of our friends and family, you know, particularly uh, anybody Samir knew um, who would be empathetic to the, to the cause and, and see if we were a match. But then there was another option which is uh, if there's a one in 20,000 chance of finding a donor, let's go out and find 20,000 people to get registered. And we knew that the highest propensity for a match was within the South Asian community. So let's go register 20,000 people. The challenge was we only had about three or four months to get it done. And so there was zero margin for failure. And, and that's the journey that we started and to figure out how to solve that problem. And here's what we did. In, 12 weeks, 
We ran 500 bone marrow drives across the country. We organized 3,500 volunteers. Uh, even, you know, Senator Barack Obama, South Asian celebrities, all pitched in uh, with their support, and we registered 24,662 people um, through that process. And it's through that process, hmm. uh, in a matter of months, getting over 24,000 people registered, that Samir found his bone marrow match. I've heard you in some contexts talk about not asking for help, but re requiring help. What, what role did <laughs> yeah. that philosophy or ethos play here? And, and how do you broadly think about that tenet as a leader? If you ask someone for help, you're giving them an option to say no. Um, so if you believe in your cause, whether you're building a campaign for a friend who needs a bone marrow match or you're, you know, you're building a company uh, or your nonprofit, um, don't ask for help. Require it. Expect it. Right? The question isn't, mm. you know, what can you do to, to help me solve this problem? The question would be, um, what's the best way in which you can help me? What do you think you could you know, contribute that would be really impactful and powerful? And it's subtle, but if you're authentic and it's for the right reasons and the right cause and you're speaking to the right people, um, it is incredible what, what gets unleashed, you know, in terms of support and energy to get behind your mission. Now, across all of this, I think what unifies, whether it is you're building a new venture inside of a company, you're starting your own nonprofit, you're whatever you're doing. Um, it's about building with purpose, um, having a clear bias for action, don't overthink it because um, the plans are going to change. You're going to learn along the way, um, but uh, you, you make it happen. And some of these lessons, I think, are really central to anything that you do, which is define your goal, build and tell your story, bias for action, right? Act first, then think, engage others in your cause, right? Bring them along on your mission and put in the hard work. You know, all of that work ultimately led to thousands and thousands of new donors in the registry. And sadly, Samir relapsed. I think there's a final lesson here, which is we think we can control the outcomes in our lives and the, the outcomes of you know, the hard work that we put in. But the reality is life doesn't, doesn't work that way. And it was really devastating for all of us to lose our best friend and uh, for Samira's family, obviously, to lose a brother, to lose, to lose a son. And we mourned him and, and, you know, we think about him. I still think about him all the time. But we learned that over time, we started getting these stories of other patients in need who matched against that, you know, those 24,662 people that we added to the registry. And within a few years, we learned that there had been over 300 matches with other patients against those 24,000 plus new donors in the registry. And ultimately, that, that's his legacy. So I think the lesson here is you can never predict what the ultimate outcome will be of all the, all the effort that you make. But if it's for the right reasons and if it's purpose-driven, it'll only be positive. And so to fast forward and jump ahead of how powerful that purpose can be as a compass, you know, I was at eBay for 12 years, culminated in running, you know, the biggest role that I ever had in my life, which is CMO of the company. Everything that I had worked for with great support and mentorship along the way. But it came to a point where I actually had to self-reflect and I had this disconnect in my final years there 
between um, the strategy of the company and the gap between the strategy and the company's purpose. And for the first time, I think in my life, I had these deep down, you know, feelings of, of actually being an inauthentic leader. Um, and it w- led to ultimately uh, one of the hardest career decisions I had to make, but also one of the simplest and most straightforward career decisions, which was to, to leave the company. You had proven over time that you had no aversion to making change, even when by all appearances from the outside, things were going great for you and, and you were in exciting roles and, and having a ton of impact. But now you're talking about external to the company and, and potentially doing something that would require you to move on from this, this organization whose, whose purpose you seem to share for, for all those years. Yeah. And part of this, you know, companies grow and evolve. And, you know, I had a deep seated belief in the power of, in the intersection really of commerce, community, trust, cross-border trade, payments, sort of these pillars that had built the company. And, you know, the company really had a strong strategic focus on moving in a very different direction to maybe shed some of the focus on small businesses and individual entrepreneurs and consumer to consumer selling and and buying that had really built the marketplace. And, you know, I was very comfortable with that, which is companies and cultures change, but that didn't mean that I had to change. And I think this is, you know, a lesson for me that I really remember upon self-reflection that any leader, whether you're a CMO or a CEO or a first-time manager, you cannot craft a culture or be successful, authentically successful in an environment that is, um, has a set of values that's fundamentally different than, than his or her values. And um, like I said, it became the toughest decision because I loved the company. I loved everybody I was working with, but it was the simplest career decision to leave. But you know, that gap is a very difficult place to operate, that gap between purpose and, and strategy. When that gap exists, I don't believe anybody can thrive. Well, and Robert, I think there's a story you shared with me in the past, the story of being on the second floor of the, of the Motors building after some people had to be let go and, and you were with your team and something wasn't right. Can you tell that story and talk about that moment? Sure. Well, it's, a, it's certainly not a story I've really told before and a very personal one, but um, I think an important one. It was, uh, I think, January 2015. And like a lot of companies, eBay had made a decision that we needed to streamline the workforce. And um, I was on the front lines of having to communicate that to certainly a lot of the employees in my organization. Um, and so I did that. And like often happens in companies when you have a reduction in force, um, soon after you pull together the team that uh, you need to lean on to help grow the company into the next chapter. And I pulled my team together. Uh, and I remember this vividly because um, I've had a lot of meetings in this building. Uh, at the time, it was called the Motors Building. And uh, I'm on the second floor, sort of a large conference room on the second floor. And all eyes are on me. And I'm in front of the room looking face to face with all of these folks who, you know, some combination of survivor guilt because we let go a lot of their colleagues and others who were just waiting to hear the vision. Like, where are we going? 
And I had to communicate why I believed so deeply in the company's strategy, purpose, vision, and the plan that we had going forward. And, you know, let me tell you, I I hope no leader has to do this uh, in their career, but the words coming out of my mouth were completely disconnected from my heart. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting to... I think it's important to point out to people that sometimes there's discomfort with direction and people can disagree and and commit as long as it's inside the radius of their belief system and their fundamental reason for, for being. And it sounds like this was just an instance where that rubber band got stretched to the point where you could no longer be comfortable with it, whether you were right or wrong almost was beside the point that you didn't believe in it any longer. And you'd built up these muscles over the course of your life and your career around courageousness and audacity and mm-hmm. always being able to to look ahead. And I think it's important to to reflect on that it wasn't just in that moment that you discovered discomfort. You had had earned your way into a clarity of your own purpose that allowed you to then say, yeah, I could move on after a decade of investing in this place. Yeah. I think that's really, you've probably articulated it even better than I had defined it for myself, but that's right. You know, and and I didn't mention this earlier, but um, I think this is a worthy exercise for anybody to go through, which is to take out a sheet of paper and a pen or a pencil and start to write down a few things you know, starting with who are you, right? And this isn't the what you do, but but who are you as a person? Define and codify who you are. And as part of that, what do you believe, right? And uh, there's no right way to do this, but I think it's an exercise worth doing. And once you're comfortable with that, then move on to the why, which is really purpose. You know, why do you do what you do? That why for me got defined as the following, which is I love creating businesses that create hope and opportunity in the world and building those businesses with high performance teams. And secondly, to be an inspiring role model for my family. Those are my why. And once you define your purpose, then you can get to the what, right? Which is the vision. Like, what do you do day in and day out? And the reality is that the what will change Right. For me, this change was the what was exercising all of that at eBay. And I knew that it was time for me to move on because I had defined my purpose. I had designed my life around that. I had, uh, you know, exercised that by dreaming bigger. Right. I always say, dream one size bigger. Like, come up with your biggest idea for what you want to do and then just dream one size bigger. Hmm. And I was really proud of everything that I had accomplished. And it was not about changing who I was or why I did what I did. It was about changing the what. And mm-hmm. this, the more clarity and the more honesty you have with yourself around those things and the more comfortable you are with that, um, I think it can be a really powerful compass um, to guide you through life. So you are now the chief marketing officer at Atlassian. So tell me, Robert, um, how you 
found your way into Atlassian. Atlassian is obviously a highly respected and very successful company in technology and, and in software, but maybe a little bit orthogonal to some of the things that you had done from a, a product yeah. perspective in, yeah. in the past. So love to know how you organized your thinking around the pursuit of, of that opportunity and, and then eventually the decision to come on board. I think that it got to a point of diminishing personal growth and professional growth in terms of building muscle around you know something new. Frankly, I love marketing, right? And I love building. And so where where could I apply that energy? Through a close friend and an executive recruiter, I had the privilege of meeting a guy named Jay Simons. And uh, Jay was the president of Atlassian, helped build this business um, from its earliest days. And uh, Atlassian is a collaboration and teamwork software company. And so I, I would say in this instance, what I immediately fell in love with was the company's mission to unleash the potential of every team, its values, open company, no bullshit is one of the top values of the company, be the change you seek. Again, this sort of opportunity to build and, and change things. And it goes on from there. It was the first time I really thought about joining a culture because of mission and, and values, first and foremost, and people, and secondarily about what the company actually does. And uh, the lesson for me there is if you have that intersection, again, similar to eBay, if you can find that, if you can look for that, um, then the what will change. Uh, and it almost is secondarily to the why. But that was, you know, the the motivation and inspiration to join was purpose. Mm. And Robert, what was it like when you you first came on board to a company that at that time had, had been around, you know, 12, 13 years? What yeah. were some of the key observations and, and challenges you had out of the gate? So I was coming into a business that had momentum, first and foremost. However, like a lot of growth companies, what I knew is that what got us here wouldn't get us to where we needed to go. And Mike and Scott, who are our founders, really have this deep-seated belief that we need to continuously reinvent what we do and how we do it for a new future. Really, like think about where we want to be, not just next year or two years out, but they talk in terms of decades, You know, building the, the 50-year company, the 100-year company. And so the, my first observation at Atlassian was that we would need to make some changes in order to set ourselves up for that next phase of growth. And coming from a consumer marketing background, my observation just generally of B2B marketing, you know, was that the industry is typically three, four, five years behind um, consumer brands in terms of how they think about brand building, storytelling, and driving growth. And so for me, I certainly had a lot to learn about enterprise marketing and in the software industry. But my first remit and focus was on incorporating the methodologies and principles that have driven some of the most successful B2C companies and doing that in our environment, really adapting it um, to Atlassian. This idea of marketing and growth at scale, adopting you know technology, data science, analytics, all of these principles around uh, building the growth engines and that's a big part of the journey that we've been on. If you're giving advice to a marketer who's part of a company where the North Star is product, which I think in technology, you know, you and I are both in marketing, we're both in technology, we see this a lot. 
if you're giving advice to somebody who has the opportunity, but also has to contend with the reality that the product is what the company is leading with, what is the highest and best way to think about the marketing team, the marketing vision, and the marketing contribution to growth and success? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, uh, product-led growth is a magical thing. But the role of the marketer is is really important. And what I would say is the fundamentals don't change, which is first and foremost to invest in building an emotional relationship with your customers, not just a functional relationship, but really forming that bond uh, to to build brand love and product love because uh, that ultimately is what leads to to customer retention and, and happiness. You build great products first and foremost, but then make sure that that relationship goes deeper. So that's one. And the second is drive revenue, build the revenue engines that can be measured to drive growth in the business. It starts with empathy for your customer. And I would say in a B2B environment, arguably, the emotional relationship with your customer is even greater than in a consumer environment because in a software business, you have a, a buyer or somebody who's sticking their neck out to bet on your product. And frankly, oftentimes when that's done at scale, they're betting their career. So there is a big emotional relationship that is inherent in these kinds of decisions. So I think that's really important to remember is building that deeper relationship with your customer. And the second is, I think, community. This is one of the biggest lessons I learned at eBay is um, creating a space for your users and customers to come together and really to engage with each other. At Atlassian now, we generate more traffic to the community than we do to Atlassian.com. And and that's really remarkable. Mm. And seeing the correlation in the value that you create in your community to revenue, building those analytic bridges to understand that is fantastic. And you know, on average, B2B customers are more likely to be influenced by the emotional relationship and social benefits of your products versus offers or discounting or you know, other tactics that are often used. And so community for us is really the heart of our business. And so customers, community, and fr- frankly, the last you know, C for me, if we will call this the three Cs, is the choreography, which is how do you bring together the whole company and customer experience? So that's the way I would think about it, which is really doesn't matter if you're in a consumer business or in a B2B business, but these principles, I think, apply to both. Robert, how do you see the CMO's role evolving, say, over the next couple of years, next five five to seven years? I think first and foremost, let's think about the marketing team. I believe very strongly that um, in a world of increased specialization in functions and roles and teams, it's tempting for companies to often fragment um, those teams and create some silos. But the modern marketing organization, you know, frankly today, but certainly in the future, should really represent systems thinking. On one hand, you're going to have the heart and soul of everything that you do with the, you know, I mentioned emotional connections, but building the brand, driving engagement, building community, great content, social engagement. And on the other hand, uh, the brain of marketing, the logic, Right, the stuff that you can measure scientifically, the analytics, the data science, those growth engines. Thinking about those two things together, and so you know, I take pride in meetings where I have machine learning experts and creatives, you know, brainstorming with each other. It's mm. how we think about it at Atlassian, and, and some of our best ideas have come 
at the intersection of where those types of teams connect. I call it, you know, the between the spaces. And in our case, it's in partnership with not just our founders and our leadership team, but heck, you know, I spend a lot of time with our general counsel these days because there's a lot of issues around privacy, a lot of issues around governance. And, you know, you talk about the CMO and the CIO or the CMO and the CTO, but I can assure you that going into the future, um, the CMO and the, the head of legal or the general counsel, very important relationship. For our, our builders listening here, if, if they wanted to know the most important piece of advice they should take from you, given the world as you've seen it and mm-hmm. the world as you've experienced it and the world as you've helped build it, uh, what would that advice be? You know, I think Daniel Pink said it best, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. You know, these are sort of very unifying as we think about our professional lives. I'll say a few things. One is be honest and true to yourself. Um, you know, can you be the same person in every dimension of your life? Really invest in, in that who and the why and the what and try to show up as the same person in every dimension of your life because one, it's authentic. And secondly, um, you'll, you'll be appreciated by the right people for, for showing up as the same person in every, every dimension of, of life. But on the more practical side, what I would say is find a high growth environment to work in. Go find growth because growth opportunity, growth environments just manufacture more opportunities. I love that. Robert, it's been great. Thank you so much. I (laughs) want to give you a special shout out here, not just for talking to me today, but uh, for helping inaugurate this platform and this experience that we're, we're putting out into the world where people can hear the incredible and authentic and personal and professional stories of of builders like yourself. So thank you so much for bringing your your, uh, deepest and authentic self to the conversation. It's been a treat. I've learned a lot and I already can't wait till we can do it again. I look forward to that. Thank you for the opportunity, Jesse. And uh, what a fantastic platform. And and it's a privilege to to spend, uh, spend the time with you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Robert Chetwani. I hope you found it as refreshingly open and entertaining and insightful as I did. You know, it's not often that a C-level leader will really open up like that and be vulnerable and put their full self on display. And and I loved it. I think it's a great reminder of how strongly we can still connect with one another, even in these tough times, if we're open, if we're honest, if we're candid, and if we're speaking from the heart. So thousand thanks to you, Robert, for coming on the show and for you being you. Now, one of the things we're going to do after every one of these shows, since you all out there are breakthrough builders, is to lay out some building blocks. A building block is an action that I want you to take that's inspired by what our guests on each show has shared. It'll be a way of taking some core element of the conversation you heard and making it work for you. In this episode, Robert told us about the work that he's done to discover and articulate and live by his purpose. Not coming up with a company purpose. He's talking about his own personal why. What he loves, why he's on this earth. Fundamental stuff, but stuff that takes some time and and effort and digging to get to. So for this week's building block, here's what I'd like you to do. Get out a sheet of paper and write down two things. 
what you love most and your reason for being. It's okay if you can't quite put it into just a few words right out of the gate. Treat the piece of paper as something you come back to and that you can refine and shape as you give it more thought and just start there. It won't be easy. It might take some time, but speaking from experience, it is totally worth it. It lends a ton of clarity on how to think about prioritizing your time, your effort, your energy, and it'll help simplify things for you. And it'll make you more memorable and distinctive and compelling to others that want to know in a professional context who you are and what you're about. If you want some templates and tips and tricks on how to get started, go on over to the show notes right here in the app you're listening to this episode on, or head on over to our website, BreakthroughBuilders.com. That's Breakthrough-Builders.com. Building with purpose. It's one of the hardest, but the most important and the most satisfying way to build breakthroughs. Trust me on that. Thanks so much for listening to Breakthrough Builders. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and a review. It really does help other listeners find us. And please, tell your friends. Breakthrough Builders is a production of the Industries team at Qualtrics. The show is written and hosted by me, Jesse Pierwall. Mastering by Nate Crenshaw. Post-production and music by Clean Cuts Audio, part of the Three C's Collective. Design by Baron Santiago and Bensuka Shindavija. Website by Gregory Haydon. And photography by Christy Hemclock. Special thanks to the entire Breakthrough Builders crew at Qualtrics, including Ali Rohani, Jeremy Smith, John Johnson, and Kylan Lundin.